Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we are speaking with Athena Herman, who is the founder of Athena Herman Law, LLC, a law firm that serves Peoria, Bloomington, and Central Illinois generally. Athena has attained several large jury verdicts, including a $4.9 million verdict in a constitutional rights case. She has also settled a case against some of the largest employers in the area, including a $9 million class action settlement involving sex discrimination. The Daily Law Bulletin has also recognized Athena as one of Illinois' top 40 attorneys under the age of 40 in 2011, and she was one of only two attorneys to receive that award outside of Chicago. Athena, welcome. You are our first downstate. Am I allowed to say downstate for Central Illinois? Uh, I think so. Thanks for having me, guys. I, I, I really appreciate it. We're glad to have you. It's nice for us to get outside of Chicago now and again with folks we talk to. So, Let's dive right into it. You, Like I said, you're our first guest that practices primarily in central Illinois, which at least to me is downstate. It's got what's unique about that area of the state, right, is it's got some of the largest employers in the in the state. How can you talk about who some of those are and how that dynamic impacts your work? Sure. Some of the bigger employers, Caterpillar, State Farm. At one point, Mitsubishi, it is it is no longer in our local area, but Rivian is now taking that same work spot. We have three major hospitals in the town of OSF. We have John Deere, not that far away, Komatsu, Keystone, which is now Liberty Steel, ADM, we, we just have a, a, a lot of largely manufacturing, production, uh, a lot of those kinds of employers, but as well as the, the healthcare industry and some up and coming high tech. So it's we're often thought of as cornfields and, and agriculture, but there is a lot of big industry. For many, many years, Caterpillar's national headquarters is right here in Peoria in our backyard. I didn't realize how diverse industries are too. You listed off manufacturing, high-tech, medicine. It, It seems like you're covering the gauntlet of industries. Yeah, we really very fortunate in employment law because the consequence <laughs> is that I have job security is really what I have. That <laughs> um, I never lack for potential claims, and they are against. Usually, those employers are hiring big law counsel as their defense out of Chicago. So I find myself my, my practice when I am against those employers is with opposing counsel who is not local. So Um, how does, do you find that to be a benefit then from in knowing, well, you tell me, do you find that to be a benefit then that you're local and they're not? 
Well, I, I think to the extent that they are not familiar with me, I think they assume that I'm a small town lawyer from this little small for tiny firm and are surprised by the experience that I have dealing with larger claims, more sophisticated employers and their attorneys. So sometimes that surprise is a benefit. <laughs> yeah, and it seems um, like you'd be more familiar than too is the, the judges, both in state and federal court, along with kind of the demographic of the juries. Yeah, well, yes, especially in federal court here in central Illinois, in my backyard in, in Peoria, we have three federal judges. So I'm going to see them over and over and over again. And that's great. I get to understand their preferences. After a while, you hope you understand some of their thinking, but it has also for me, required that this repeat defendants, repeat opposing counsel, and repeat judges has really defined how I feel I need to practice, which is that, and, and even for the smaller employers, we, there's a smaller local defense bar. So I see them over and over as well. And when it is requires I do is, is be very, very selective about the cases that I take. I do lots and as much uh, of pre-case investigation as I can before I ever pop my head above water. And I can't afford to bluff. If I take a case uh, and make a threat, I have to be willing to follow through. If I bluff, that is going to spread like wildfire through the community. And then I'm not going to be as good to any of my clients, either current clients or future clients. I'd like to think anyway that part of the value that I bring as an attorney in the community representing employees is that when the other side gets a letter from me, they know I'm serious. They know I think this is a good claim and I am never going to go away. I love there's, that. There's value in them knowing you're going to be a gnat that they're never going to be able to get rid of. And it's going to be less annoying if they just stop trying to swat you and negotiate, right? Like, Right. If I were to make a threat and not follow through, it would really damage my practice. But so I'm really, really selective up front. And once I'm in, I am in all the way. And that has it it's on one hand that's helpful you know to that the community hopefully understands that's my my reputation and takes my cases seriously and knows even if i'm going to lose i said a lot of times i'd rather lose at, at trial or going all the distance rather than settle for something that i don't think is reasonable and and that's been really helpful in it, whether they think they're going to win or not, they know that they're going to have a long fight on their hands. Do you, maybe this is hard to say without practicing in both places at once, but do you find the types of claims you see, well, we're all on the NILA listserv. We all interact with each other and we all kind of get a sense of what cases people are seeing. Do you find the cases you're seeing in the central part of the state 
maybe you don't know, it's hard to say what people in Chicago are doing, but that there's a difference between the the type or volume of cases you're seeing in terms of what they are versus what you see up in the Chicago area? Or is that hard to... That, I don't know that I have a great basis to compare with the, vol- with, with the volume of cases in Chicago, although I do co-counsel with, on occasion with Chicago Council, and I have had cases in the Northern District. Usually they originate down here, and there's some reason we want to be up there. Um, but what I do find here in Central Illinois is a lot of age discrimination claims. I find a lot of gender and sexual harassment claim. And I think a lot of times that's because of the nature of this workforce, these big companies who are manufacturing and largely uh, male-dominated workforces. And so the nature of those claims, I think, heavily hence tends towards gender discrimination. I think the evolution of some of these larger employers who have an aging workforce is now putting us into seeing a lot of age discrimination claims. Do you find- FMLA too. That makes sense. Employers just still don't get it. Well, Rich Rich Gonzalez, I, I can't remember if he said it on our podcast or not, or he was one of our first guests. And he said early on, he's been convinced in his whole career that the FMLA is just designed for employers, like middle management, non-HR folks to just blow it on a consistent basis. He said, because like lawyers get it wrong a lot. So how is somebody who doesn't do what we do going to get that law right? It's It's a really easy one to trip up, I think. Yeah, and I spend quite a bit of time, actually, what, even if I think somebody has an, an what could be an excellent claim, I prefer to give the employer a chance to fix it. So I, the, the, the pre-litigation letter on FMLA claims, I've had some success doing those letters and the employer goes, oops, and does fix it. So at, at least I get sometimes some some something accomplished without litigation with FMLA. Hopefully we're not trending into territory that's going to get you into too much trouble here, but COVID obviously and unfortunately has had a lot of politicization to it with vaccines and workplace safety generally. Have you found, what sorts of COVID-based claims have you been seeing in your neck of the woods? I guess it'd be hard to compare to what we're seeing up here, but I'd be curious because I think, I think depending on where you are, the types of COVID claims you see probably differ. Well, I, I have seen uh, quite a few people who want to understand. Some of them just want to understand and some of them want to challenge. Um, do I have to get a vaccine? Can the employer make me do this? Can, can they force me to get a vaccine? And, and I typically say, no, they can't force you to get a vaccine, but you also can't force them to employ you. But so I, I really many, many more, for lack of a better term, either anti-vaxxers or people who are opposed to the mandates. I've seen very few cases where people coming to me complaining about a lack of compliance with any of the mandates or or, or work, much more on the other side. What has been surprising to me a bit is in my practice and and I don't my my co-counsel from Chicago tell me that most Chicago counsel don't charge for their initial consultations that those are are 
are free up up front on the initial talk. And I charge for my initial consultations because otherwise I would spend all day, right? And I find it to be the greatest screening tool ever is, is to charge for the initial consultations. And if, if, if it's important enough, they'll come up with it most of the time. And of course there are exceptions. But how many people are, despite, I think if you do some research, they can find most of their answers online, but how many people are willing to pay to hear, explain to them why their position is wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I've had a a limited amount of experience in the central district, and I remember it being pretty good about remote proceedings and hearings. Has the remote aspect continued to be pretty good down in the state and federal courts in the central district? You know, it has always, uh, even though the federal courthouse is literally less than one block from my office, and I still conduct almost everything telephonically, it is rare that we get called in for a live hearing on anything and if so take this seriously what is it that they want to see you about and also because most of my opposing counsels from further away we have just typically been doing things most hearings most uh telephonically and i have not had a trial yet during since the pandemic started in federal court so i'm not sure how it would go i think the orders and and i don't haven't looked at them them recently, but was absolutely friendly towards conducting everything remotely as possible. I think the courts have been super cautious and have really done a good job down here. And you're telling us a little bit about how in federal court, you essentially see the same three or judges or so a lot. Is that true in state court as well? Are you often in kind of the same courtrooms or is it more evolving? I am not often in state court, although I like it when I am. I am really fortunate. We have a, a very congenial local bar and local practitioners I find to be professional and courteous, but I don't see them often because they're not the defense counsel in those cases very often. But when I am there, I I like it very much. And and I feel the same way about the judges. Uh, The judges are typically, uh, the state court judges are typically friendly and courteous. And I think try to do a a good job. So I don't mind being in state court for those reasons, but I was raised as a rule girl growing up in the federal system. So I prefer to be in the federal system just because, frankly, I feel like I know the rules so well. It gives me an advantage and I understand that practice really well. All right. So the main question I've been itching to ask you about is your jury verdicts and just your large settlements. Actually, you've had some really awesome, successful results throughout your career. What has kind of been the key to some of these big verdicts and settlement amounts for you? Uh, Well, taking good cases, being really, really selective. I think everything that I've mentioned before, and I really had the privilege. My first job out of law school was Benassi and Benassi and working with Patricia Benassi. So I've had really a a great mentor to teach me. (laughs) 
With respect to, I, I just like to tell this story. When I, before I even graduated, I had done a summer internship at Benassi and Benassi, and I worked on the Mitsubishi sexual harassment case. Oh, wow. So that was kind of my first exposure. So I really had just the great fortune of being exposed early on to how to handle bigger cases, cases that sometimes get uh, press here in, in central Illinois. There's not a lot of us doing the, this work and it seems we end up in the press when it, when we do have jury trials. Well, it sounds like too, you like taking stuff to jury trial. It, it, this sounds like it happens a lot more often than it does. Uh, it used to happen more often. I have not had a jury trial in several years. I'd like to think that's because people don't want to go to jury to trial <laughs> against me. <laughs> but but more likely because we settle most of. I like going to trial. I really, really do. And I think that comes from my speech and debate background. But I, I like going to trial. I, in some respects, I wish I had the opportunity to do it more. But it's almost always, you know, in our clients' best interests not to. How are the jury pools in central Illinois? Mm. In my experience, and it has, it, like I said, it has been several years since I've gone through a, a full Wadir and, and gone taken a, a good hard look at the veneer but it, my experience is in federal court it's lily white is what it is and that we get a lot more diversity in the state court juries that's the biggest and so if i am, am looking for diversity in my jury pool state court is, is where you want to be are you able to talk about any of the large verdicts you've gotten? So sticking with some of those big verdicts, can we go back to that a nearly four, $5 million constitutional rights verdict that you have? Can, are you comfortable talking about that one? A yeah, little bit? actually, that one, that one is, is, is e well, not easy because it was against DCFS. So as a public a governmental employer, I, I don't think I'm bound by nearly anything there. How fantastic is this? That was my first jury trial with Patricia. Wow. Um, that's so, amazing. Uh, that was, at law school when this happened? Uh, I think maybe two years out, maybe. That's so cool. And yeah, Mitsubishi uh, had, had just finished up. And then we had this DCFS trial, Ryan and Gillespie versus DCFS. Um, which had a long storied history before I got there. But it was really great because at, at, we were a small, tiny trial team. It was uh, the entire employment law team at Benassi and Benassi was me and Patricia. So that was great. I got to do things. And I also, though, have to give a big shout out to Carol Posegate, who is an attorney at Posegate and Dennis, who joined us to do that trial. And she was phenomenal. Um, but it was, it was great. And here is one of the things that strikes me now. One of the claims that we won on was an equal protection class of one theory, which would no longer exist if we went to trial today. 
So you said you co-counsel some cases in the Northern District area, and you'll do the occasional case in Chicago. So you've seen people work in the Chicago area. You've seen them work in central Illinois. Can you talk about some common mistakes you see maybe people from the city areas making when they practice in your area? Not that it's entirely rural necessarily, but you've described it's a very small community. Most of the attorneys and judges seem to know each other. So I get the sense somebody coming in from Chicago who's not or or elsewhere who may not be terribly familiar with the area and the legal community could step in it a few times without without knowing it. Are you are you comfortable talking about some of the mistakes you might see people make in that vein? I think the biggest mistake I see that people coming down from Chicago and practicing, at least in our state courts, is that. There there seems to be an idea that we're local yokels representing farmers, and they are shocked that actually I think the bar down here is far more sophisticated. And, And so that's a big mistake, I think. And going back to your rules comment, I love the local rules for the Central District. I think they're awesome, especially for motions for summary judgment. I, I, I could see a lot of attorneys who don't typically practice in your area making mistakes around that, too. Oh, yes, especially with discovery fights. We have many of the judges anyway, have very specific ways that they want it handled before the, the motion even hits their table. They, In fact, they don't want a motion to hit their table uh, until very specific ways that you have tried to resolve it. And how you then bring it to the court's attention is very specific as well. All of that, those mistakes can be resolved by reading the local rules and looking specifically at the standing orders of the judge you're appearing in front of. I mean, even though we're small, those rules vary from judge to judge. And that's my biggest, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's a good point. It's funny because I think in some way that applies everywhere, right? Like people just deciding they want to be aggressive without checking. But I always feel like the if you do that, if you make the mistake you're describing, it, it's like going to mom or dad after you haven't tried to work it out with your sibling, you and your brother are fighting over the truck. And it's like, you go to mom and dad to resolve it. And it's like, well, did you try to work it out amongst yourselves? No. Well, then go back and work it out and then come back to me. I don't want to deal with this right now. The magistrate, magistrate judge Jonathan Hawley, who is the magistrate on almost all of the cases that appear in front of the the Peoria division, at least, and in some of the other areas as well. I really like his method, which is you have to, to, of course, make your first attempt to resolve it. And then you have to call the court saying no more. You you have to file a motion with the court saying no more than that you have a discovery dispute. And then he has a conference call where you have to explain what the dispute is, and either he will shoot from the hip or tell you whether or not this is something that he thinks requires a brief at all. Oh, that's super efficient. I like that yeah. a lot. Because normal practice, at least in a lot of my cases, is you kind of maybe send a letter, you have the phone call, and then you write a motion. And then you have that conversation. This kind of omits that middle piece of the motion so you can cut straight to the chase. Yeah, it can. And, you know, right then and there, you're explaining the dispute to him and he can either say, 
oh, I know how this is going to go. Here you go. And you can say, oh, please, I, I'd like to, to file a motion to explain to you, you know, either some case law, et cetera. But you're going to get a pretty good feel for how things are going to go and it get things done really quickly. But he is open-minded enough that I have seen him change his mind. But it's when it's an issue of substance where it could go either way. It takes care of the petty fights so simply. Which is helpful. I wanted to circle back to something we talked about a little bit earlier. Just one or two more questions about it. You had, you know, you mentioned you see a lot of the same employers over and over again. Do you find that, do you find that local attorneys are less likely to want to cross those big employers uh, that you being one of the only employment lawyers on the plaintiff side down there is a function of that, that maybe just folks don't want to mess with you know, everybody's meal ticket and, you know, if, if this is the big business that everybody works for, maybe not everybody wants to cross them. I know when I went to undergrad at Michigan, there were a lot of kids from Midland, Michigan. I don't know if I met you remember this when you were at state. I do. Um, yeah. And Dow Chemical is really it is the town, basically like Dow, the, the high school, the main high school, there is Dow Chemical High School. Everybody went to Dow High School. Everybody's parents were chemists or engineers or like worked at Dow. And, and now doing what I do for a living, I always got the sense, I wonder if you can actually even sue the company if they do something locally, because I, I have a feeling most local lawyers won't want to cross them. Do you find that dynamic to ever be the case in, in central Illinois with some of these bigger employers? Yes, or at least my clients and potential clients think so. I, but I do, for, in particular, I find that same dynamic happens with Caterpillar. Almost everybody has somebody in their family who worked at Caterpillar, um, who maybe they're now no longer work for Caterpillar, but they're getting a pension from Caterpillar. And so it affects not only who's going to take what claim and people's willingness to bring that claim, but it also really, really affects the jury pool. And I have learned a lot uh, about trying to weed out anybody with any connection from Caterpillar to the jury pool when I have a case against Caterpillar, because people fear that my pen, I could lose my pension, my son could be fired, you know, whatever relationship it might be is going to be adversely impacted. In my first jury trial against Caterpillar, which was a David versus Caterpillar. We brought six counts against Caterpillar. I think three gender discrimination, three retaliation, all related to the same issue of promotion. We had, when we were going through the voir dire and jury selection, we were, we were running out of strikes, but there was one gentleman who said he did not work for Caterpillar, but admitted that about 5% of his business was related to Caterpillar. And we thought, oh, 5% doesn't sound like that much because we thought we were choosing amongst evils. <laughs> and we here's what we found out. Well, we won that trial, which was fantastic. But we won on a single retaliation claim and, and lost the other five, which was really weird to us. And eventually we had multiple jury members contact us to tell us that everybody on the jury, except that one guy, wanted to find on our behalf on every claim. Wow. 
and and you know maybe there are other reasons attributed to why he felt that way but now i even say five percent of your business or livelihood tied to caterpillar is too much and it becomes really difficult to get rid of that many people if you're having to exercise your your preemptories so explaining to the judge why anybody with any relationship to caterpillar should be out of there for cause is a really important fight you talked earlier about your process when you're selecting a case and how that's important to you so when it's it is an entity like Caterpillar. Are you taking extra steps just to make sure, like, if this is going to go to trial, it's going to, you know, it's David versus Caterpillar. What, what ducks do I need to make sure are in a row? What, what, what steps are you then taking to make sure you feel comfortable with the case? Whether it's Caterpillar or really anybody else, I have to be confident that I think this case is going to survive summary judgment because I cannot assume that there's going to be any settlement, especially with until we get to there. So I start at the end. If I don't see how this case makes it past summary judgment, I don't take it. And then with Caterpillar, the other issue, with, and, and with the other larger employers as well, is making sure that my client is willing to go the distance because I don't want to be in a situation where they don't understand really how long and hard this is going to be. And then I get undercut in the end. So I, I need to see how I get past summary judgment and, and kind of line my evidence up ahead of time. I know a lot of NILA lawyers get out of the either EEOC or IDHR investigative process as soon as possible to take their case to court. On the, I like to use those agencies as much as possible to do as much pre-litigation investigation as possible. I think there is gold in position statements and I want them. I think that's smart. It's a nice way to get somebody's position on paper and at least figure out what they're going to argue and know what you're up against. It's, it's nice free discovery, I think. And I think you said something in there that we've talked about before too, which is clients need to know what they're getting into because, you know, they think they're filing a lawsuit and it's like TV and no, this could be a 10 year process. Sometimes you just don't know. And, and as a matter of business, uh, again, kind of performing this, the same screening process, uh, unless it is, there's something really special about the case. I don't do them on a pure contingent. I have, require that people put some money down up front and if i win they'll get that back but if not they have something to seriously risk before we wrap up we have one last thing we want to ask you which is your shout out of the week it can be a book a movie a tv show a person just something positive it could be your associate it could be a mentor someone you want to shout out shout out a pet yeah I, I do want to give a shout out to Patricia Benassi. She is largely responsible for the lawyer I have become in the business I have learned. And uh, I can't thank her enough. That's awesome. That's How awesome. do we find you, Athena? Uh, on the web, athenahermanlaw.com. That's usually the best way to get a hold of me. And um, we have a, a system there for anybody who's looking for, for representation. They can even submit uh, a form, uh, although I will add that my I have I also want to give a shout out to my assistant, Lori Maurer, because she is fantastic at intake and I could not do this without her. That's great. Well, well thank you for coming on. Thank you for your time. I, I really enjoyed this. I enjoy learning more about 
practices outside of my own. And so this was super cool. Well, thank you both. This is a phenomenal resource for, for all of us. Thanks for coming on, Athena, and, and sharing your story with us. To everybody at home, thank you for listening. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.